Hello, everyone. This is Tracy Siska. Welcome to the Chicago Justice Show. Thank you so much for joining us. We're excited today. In the first segment, we have Joby Cates, founder and executive director of Restore Justice Illinois. We're going to be talking about the big omnibus bill that passed HB 3653, I believe it is. Um, it's an 800-page bill. Uh, last week with Sarah Stout from the Chicago Council of Lawyers, we talked about some of the policing implications. Today, we're going to talk about how that bill impacts um, corrections, those incarcerated in the Illinois Department of Corrections, and some uh, community supervision um, aspects to it, too. It should be very interesting. The bill's huge. I recommend that you all... Um, Read the bill yourself, or choose the media that you uh, that you choose to uh, believe about what's in the bill. There's been a lot of um, doomsdayness among the response from the police and uh, the FOP here, the Chicago Police, the Illinois Sheriff's Association. We'll talk about that a little bit later. If you want to get involved in looking at policy and analyzing it and trying to move things forward, every Wednesday. We are, are what we call our CJP Nation, our advocacy wing of our organization, meets uh, every Wednesday evening at 7 p.m. Central. Um, basically, this group does a bunch of crowd, uh, crowd-based research projects. They help us with policy. There's going to be some movement on our police settlement transparency and accountability ordinance in the city council, at least what that's, we started to hear rumbles about that, so that may heat up soon. Um, but also they do big research projects, like um, two of the big things that are going on right now is uh, we have groups looking at uh, this alternative response program called Cahoots in Eugene, Oregon. They were on the show recently. We had a couple of people from the show recently on, and then also the Milwaukee, Milwaukee Homicide Review Commission. We wanna propose um, similar projects to those two in Chicago, but the groups are researching uh, how those programs work and then how they, they've been replicated across the country, how they're working in other cities and other states um, so that we can um, fine tune our proposals to propose things like um, those programs in Chicago. Um, another thing is a legislative agenda dealing with this bill where uh, we have a bunch of a group of researchers looking at um, all the uh, requisite reports, the police accountability task force report, the uh, consent decree, the consent decree monitors reports, uh, reports from the Police Executive Research Forum and the International Association of Chiefs of Police, Obama's 21st Century Task Force, and helping us fine-tune what we're going to call legislative agenda for accountability. Um, I've helped architect the police accountability system in Chicago, and much, much of that has been an absolute failure. We have to get away from relying on the police accountability system and head towards uh, what One of the things in this bill is heading towards, if you don't want police to do certain things, make them crimes, make those activities crimes. In this bill that we're going to be talking about today, but just on the incarceration part, um, knowingly turning off your body camera to hide information or lying in a police report or knowingly letting another officer lie in a police report is now can be a class three felony. That's significant progress. We want to add to that. So, um by all means, join us tonight. Um, if you want more information, you can email uh, us at info at chicagojustice.org and we'll get you information. We'll get you the link for tonight. All of that's not a problem. Also, just so you know, this is our last episode on Wednesday afternoons at this time. 
starting next week, March 1st, we move to Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 5.30 Central, three times a week. We're going to try to have one show focus on the media and crime reporting, violence reporting, both locally and nationally. Uh, the Wednesday uh, show is going to continue to be an interview show focused on what's going on locally in Chicago and Cook County in Illinois. And then the Friday show is going to focus um, similar to Wednesday, but the Friday show is going to be focused more nationally. Um, so if uh, that is something you'd like to support, you can also uh, get to us at information uh, at info.chicagojustice.org or go to our website and um, you can donate to support, uh, sponsor the show. We would really appreciate it. Next Monday, we are featuring Jonna, Jonathan Bellew, the first in our inaugural shift of the show, um, a local journalist, freelance journalist now in Chicago and also a law student. Um, and we're going to talk to him about his experiences being on the street covering the George Floyd protests. We are going to be also talking to him about his response to the inspector general's report about the Chicago police department's handling of the George Floyd's protests and the activities of, uh, the police department. I read some of his stuff on Twitter. He's a great follow, um, he has some interesting, uh, context and not, um, context that is actually um, based on being there. Um, he was a great read in the stuff that he wrote. I highly recommend if you want to know more about what was going on to look his stuff up. I know, I think he wrote for some national outlets. I know he wrote some stuff in the Chicago Reporter. Um, but um, I highly recommend you join us next Monday, 530 Central for that. We'll be back right after this with Joby Cates from Restore Justice Illinois. Join a group of engaged and committed individuals advocating for transparency and accountability in the local justice system around the country. Get engaged through crowdsourced research projects, digital activism, public policy advocacy, or become a social media ambassador. Our criminal justice system will not reform itself. Communities must demand it. Transparency can be the fuel for justice our local communities need to combat the weaponizing of data by our justice system. Transformation of our justice system cannot occur until we know exactly what they are doing and who they are doing it to. Get involved today. CJP Nation. All right, we're back. I'm so happy to bring back to the show. She was on one of our first shows, um, which seems like about five years ago now, but it was only several months ago. Welcome back, Joby Cates. Thank you so much for coming on again. Thank you for having me. And now time is meaningless these days. <laughs> Ain't that the truth? It's amazing to think that we've all been, or many of us, I shouldn't say all of us, many of us have been basically locked down for almost a year. Who yeah, would have ever thought something. do it? Right. But we, we, the, the sun is rising a little bit. Like I am confident we will not be in this situation 12 months from now. I agree. I agree. There's a light at the end of the tunnel. There is. And we got confidence in the White House. That's a, less than a mile away from where I am coming from. Thank God. Um, although we're posed because we're getting told in D.C. that uh, next Thursday is going to be a bad day in D.C. Because the fourth there's more. Um, insurrectionists planning to come to D.C., which oh, is why good. I'm getting Huey helicopters over my apartment pretty regularly now. Oh, boy. Oh, That's yeah, frightening. Yeah. Well, take care. Welcome to D.C. 
Never thought I'd get that when I moved to this nation's capital. Okay. So for our listeners who don't know, can you give them the elevator speech on what Restore Justice Illinois does? Sure. Um, Restore Justice is an organization founded by uh, lawyers, family members, and friends of people who originally had sentences of life without parole uh, for things they did when they were young, when they were kids in some cases. And that little group of people uh, stuck together. And in 2012, following a U.S. Supreme Court case called Miller v. Alabama, uh, we band together as a part of a coalition to start a legislative push uh, around really kind of excessive and extreme uh, sentencing regimes for young people, um, which are also, tell you a secret, they're bad sentencing regimes for grown up people too. Um, But we started our focus with young people. And now we have two entities. We have a 501c3 called Restore Justice Foundation, which does research and uh, communications. And we have a network, a growing network of men, um, unfortunately no women yet, who've uh, been released after more than 20 years who um, assist in our work. And we have a C4 called Restore Justice Illinois, which does the lobbying and a little bit of electoral work to try to promote um, sort of fair uh, public safety and criminal justice reform policies. Okay, so we're talking today about this big, big, big 800-page bill. Um, I'm calling it HB 3653, this omnibus bill that passed that was just signed into law yesterday. So how how involved was Restored Justice on pushing this? And how long of a push was it? How long were you involved for in this campaign? Well, it's interesting because, you know, it was really about a five day campaign because the bill didn't drop until the first, you know, the night before the five day lame duck session in January. (laughs) Shortest campaign ever. Um, I'm hoping someone out there is laughing at that joke. Um, (laughs) In reality, what an omnibus often is, and what this omnibus is, is um, an amalgam of, you know, in some cases, decades worth of legislative proposals and ideas that have been through the process at some level and haven't passed yet. And there were very few totally brand new ideas in the omnibus. So the the piece of the bill that we are responsible for is the felony murder reform. Um, And that is something we've been working on um, really in depth since 2018. So not very long um, compared to some of the other uh, pieces of the bill. But our work on felony murder reform involved um, Senator Peters, who is one of the champions of the legislation and Representative Slaughter, who is the House sponsor. So when they were deciding what went in the bill and what didn't and what was going to get negotiated out um, as negotiations um, with opposition uh, heated up during those five days, we were um, really grateful that felony murder stayed in and we were, um, you know, as involved as we possibly could be uh, without the traditional tools at our disposal when tools being showing up uh, <laughs> and walking around and following people, we couldn't do that. So we, um, you know, we had days of action. We had um, really extensive social media trying to remind people of some of the really um, horrible felony murder cases um, over the past several years. This is why this legislation was so important. Okay. That is, let's get into the weeds 
of uh, what has passed here because I think um, mm -hmm. the media doesn't get into the weeds enough and then they're too reliant on sound bites yeah. from pro-sides and anti-sides. Yeah. This, re this reform is great. The sky is falling. Criminals are going to rain. Right? <laughs> yeah. It's the end of policing in Illinois. And so neither of those things are really true. I mean, it's, it's something in the middle, right? It's a great it, step it forward. It is. It always is. It's and it's never, not the end of the world. You never get what you want. Yep. All right. So yeah. we're going to start right away with the the narrowed scope of felony, the felony murder law. So yes. for our viewers, quickly, what is the felony murder law? So they understand what it is and what sure. changes has come about as, a, as as because of this the passage of this bill. Yes. Yeah, so the felony murder rule is actually a really old. Um, it's a really old part of our criminal statute. It's been around. Um, Really as long as we've had a criminal statute. And it's, it's, I would say, archaic in that we had a law that allowed an individual to be convicted of first-degree murder if they were participating in a what's called a forcible felony. So it might be like an armed robbery or a burglary, certain types of burglary. Um, they're out with their friends. They're doing crime. Uh, they're breaking the law. And in the course of doing the activity, the, the breaking and entering, whatever they're doing, someone dies. Maybe it's one of the co-defendants. Maybe it's a police officer shows up and shoots and kills one of the co-defendants. Maybe it's the, uh, the victim of the forcible felony fights back and kills one of the co-defendants. Maybe it's a car accident in flight from the, uh, the site. And it, it could really be an accident. All of the co-defendants involved in the underlying felony now, um, able to be prosecuted for first degree murder, which in Illinois, you know, it's our most, it's our most serious crime and it carries the longest criminal sentence. So you can imagine in the nineties in particular, but going through to this day, how a statute like that could be used to, um, encourage, uh, some might say, um, uh, forcibly encourage cooperation, um, plea deals. It could be used to scoop up five or six co-defendants instead of just focusing on one in a particular incident. It can, and it really what it does is it takes young people who are often in these sort of code situations, these co-defendant situations, and exposes them to the most extreme punishment in our state. Um, the next question was, I think, Tracy, so how did it change? Yeah. So for any sort of legal nerds, I'm not a lawyer. So I, 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 I translate lawyer, but I'm not a lawyer. So um, I will uh, just give that little disclaimer. But basically, the, the rest of the country, many, many, many other states have a felony murder policy, um, but it's narrower. And the burden of proof, the standard of what a prosecutor has to show in order to charge felony murder, to charge first degree murder, uh, for someone who's just involved in the underlying offense, the underlying um, kind of non-murder offense, that um, is something that other states have dealt with, and they've changed um, to what they call an agency theory, which means the individual would have to have some, it's kind of logical, agency in the situation. They would have to have some knowledge. They would have to have some um, sense that this is where this incident was going. In Illinois, we use uh, what a minority of states use, which is sort of considered the old way, which is called the proximate cause theory. And that's, you're there, you were part of it, doesn't matter how, you're in trouble. So for murder. Um, so to be clear, the opposition was sort of, 
we've abolished the felony murder rule, murderers, we can't catch murderers. Well, that's not true, right? We didn't abolish the felony murder rule. We still have a felony murder rule. It's just a slightly narrower one. Um, it's one where you can no longer um, be uh, arrested as a for first degree murder if you were just along for the ride. All right, well, I am all for that. I have always thought that that statute seemed kind of ridiculous. Like, mm -hmm. I understand, like, you know you're going in and you're all going in with guns and the plan to one extent or another is to shoot, like you're going to rob another set of drug dealers and you're going in to shoot them. You may not, you, you may not be the shooter, but you know they're going in to shoot the person. They're going to go in and kill him. Mm -hmm. I could see an argument for that, but like someone has a heart attack while you're driving away or <laughs> spins yeah. their car out because they get scared. I just, I have always, um, I always thought that was questionable. It reminds me of Governor Ryan's task force and on the, on the death penalty. And yeah. I know that we wanted to create a commission to oversee or to authorize every time a prosecutor wanted to use, uh, charge the death penalty because they, the commission said it's used way too often as a, bargaining tool as a and bargaining then when the chip, person yeah. doesn't as a bargaining chip and then when the person doesn't plead people have set, been sentenced to death who should have never even been up for the death penalty right because they refused that's to right. plead that's right um, and because so, illinois has these terrible other statutes for example we don't have parole for most people we don't have we have truth and sentencing now which means we don't offer time off for good behavior you have a situation where a 15 16 17 18 19 year old felony murder with a gun let's say two people died, they didn't shoot them, they didn't kill them. That's what, 40 plus 40, 40 plus 25, that's 65 years for first degree murder. And if you were 15, 16, 17, and you didn't kill anyone, and your public defender said plead guilty to murder, because then you'll get, we'll, we'll waive the gun, the judge will waive the gun enhancement or whatever. And they would say, no, I didn't kill anyone. And no matter how you look at the statute or read the statute to a 15-year-old who feels like they didn't murder someone, of course they're going to try. Of course they're going to go to court. And then they lose. And then they end up with 65 years. Um, whereas older you know, and more maybe more sophisticated defendants might um, take the deal. It's the younger ones who don't. Horrible. Okay. Another change has been this. <laughs> Sorry. <change for laughs> no, that's all right. It's, it's, it's the truth. It is the truth. Uh, habitual criminals. And that now yes. the change has been that only felonies committed uh, from the time they're 21 um, count. What, why do you think that change is important? Oh, it's critical. So the habitual offender law is is what, what other states call the three strikes, three strikes and you're out. So it's, um, it's a statute that, again, is often used to up the ante on um, people who are considered to have been um, habitual crime, uh, you know, involved in a life of habitual crime. But when did that life start? Um, so if you're a teenager and you're in involved in a gang and you have some youthful indiscretions, um, some things you did um, as part of getting by, um, making bad choices, running with a crowd, should that part of your record be held against you? If when you're 21 or you're 22, you're still engaged in that behavior and 23, 24, you're still engaged in that behavior, 
Again, I don't always agree with the outcome, but you could make a case. There's a strong argument to be made that the older you are, the more accountable you are, particularly when you age out of um, of the that sort of time of life when criminal activity is attractive and appealing and your brain is less adept at dealing with consequences. So this law makes it so that you can't count, the first strike can't be before the age of 21. So that's, um, it, so it means things aren't accumulating toward that end, um, which is a really extreme prison sentence, um, unless uh, it started after twenty after age twenty one or age twenty one and over. Huh. Yep. it's a I big deal. That's another important. <laughs> yeah, I think that's another important um, step in the right direction. I think, um, especially for people that are criticizing the bill, I think they fail to realize these are only steps in a overall uh, campaign to make changes because there's a lot right. of changes to be made. Um, this one, uh, mandatory minimums. So yeah. Now, well, go ahead. Because I know it got no, changed. No, you go ahead. Ask the question. There's, now, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a change that now allows a judge, if they, and correct me if I'm wrong, if they think it's appropriate to I'm going to, I don't know if, I guess the word is disregard the mandatory minimum and possibly offer the person probational sign of conditional discharge. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Am I, do I got it right? And what are your thoughts? I think that's that? correct. Uh, I mean, this is not an area of the statute that I'm an expert in, um, but I will say that um, if I had to identify one area um, that really was missing in the larger omnibus, it was sentencing. So it was that the idea of getting at mandatory minimums. This is a tiny little change to mandatory minimums. This is not a big deal. Um, as, there are a lot of things in this bill that are a really big deal. This is not among them, um, in my opinion. It's a pretty minor okay. change. Yeah. So you talked, um, you just brought up sentencing. So let's go. How do, um, so there's no, is there no chance for parole or very little chance for parole for people in Illinois, explain that a little bit because I don't think people understand that. Sure. And then I want to sure. talk about the changes for sentencing credits. Sure. Yeah, this is exciting. So sentencing is one thing. And then post-sentencing, we call it meaningful opportunities for release. So um, in some states, there are robust parole systems where you can go before a parole board. The parole board can um, let you out early and on some kind of supervision in some cases, in other cases not. Um, other mechanisms to get people out early are, we call it good time, earned sentencing credit. So we'll get to that. Parole in Illinois was abolished in 1978. Um, and so right now there are about 40, I think it's 40, it might be a little bit more, between 40 and 70, but I think it's 40, um, remaining individuals in the state of Illinois who have the pre-1978 parole regime, where they get to go before a parole board every year, two, three years, make their case that they're rehabilitated and be considered for release. This is what most states offer, and it's what many of us just assume is there. Um, and it's not there in Illinois anymore, unless you were convicted before 1978. Um, a big chunk of Restore Justice's work in the first um, you know, five years of our existence was trying to bring back some parole opportunities. Um, we would love to bring back parole for everybody. Politically, that has not been palatable. We've not been able to make, um, you know, basically get enough votes on any bill that would provide comprehensive parole. So we started, uh, we thought, let's get it in place. Let's see if we can start chipping away at the block. Um, so we, uh, 
we supported Representative Barbara Flynn Curry, Leader Curry at the time, and now Senate President Don Harmon um, in, a, in a campaign that lasted from 2012 through 2018 to bring back some type of parole. And the parole that was restored was only for people under the age of 21, that 21 um, age of maturity line again. And it is um, not every year, every two or three years, but it's really two to three bites at the apple in the lifetime of the person who um, can come before the parole board. And that is what we were able to do. It's not retroactive. So um, it does not help us solve the really terrible problem of the fact that many, many people who were sentenced during the worst years of the, the ramp up in sentencing can't take advantage of this mechanism right now. Um, but we're working on it. Okay, so define for our our viewers, what are sentencing credits and how did that change in this bill? Um, oh, boy. So sentencing credits are really complicated. <laughs> um, so I'm going to do my best to distill it. So in the olden days, in the days of yore in Illinois before 1998, if you were convicted of anything, you uh, got to earn good time, time off for good behavior. Um for many people, for most people, it was called day for day. So you got, basically, if you got an 80 year sentence, if you were good for 40 years, you get 40 years off and you go home at, after 40 years. Some offenses, it was a higher percentage. You had to do 75, 85. I'm not sure if that's accurate, actually. I need to double check that one. Um, my history is, is might be off. But that, that law that was passed in 1995 that actually was finally implemented in 1998, um, was the single largest, I think, the single largest driver of extreme uh, prison terms in Illinois. Because what it did was it took, um, you know, if the base uh, if the base sentence for one homicide is twenty years, um, and with a gun you add twenty five, so it's forty five years. You have people who are serving twenty two and a half years for something who are now serving the full forty five. It's that like that. And I think there was a feeling at the time that in, in the 90s that judges would sort of lower the ranges or that they would go to the bottom end of the range. Well, they didn't. They didn't. So time literally just exponentially uh, increased. So what earned sentencing credits are now, as changes have been made to the law over the years, um, are less about um, automatic time off for good behavior. Automatics, quasi-automatic. And it's more about... Um, credit for courses taken. So certain getting a GED comes with a certain number of days off, depending on when you are sentenced. So again, many of these laws are not retroactive. So there are more opportunities available to people sentenced before 1998 than there are to people sentenced after 1998. Um, this particular statute is retroactive. So it does, which is a real groundbreaking um, uh, uh, facet of this piece of the law. And the champions behind this were the John Howard Association and the Alliance for Safety and Justice. Those are two organizations that I would recommend sort of following for those of you who are into this stuff. I, we, didn't, we didn't work on this provision, but the thing I like best about this provision, because my population, the people I care about, um, kind of really advocating for in prison are people who are serving more than 20 years. So in this provision, in the statute, they, um, I think based on their learnings from COVID in many ways, the director has always had the ability to offer 180 days of good time, of time off, early release, to people who are engaged in certain courses or for whatever reason are, are 
eligible, close to their out date and eligible for this good time. This new statute creates a tier of being able to earn 365 days if you have more than a five-year sentence. And during COVID, what we found was it's really easy to release people who are really close to their out date if you know, they've got a two-year sentence and they're six months out. But if you've got a 27-year sentence and you're one year out, you, you're out of luck. So this was a way to sort of, I think, create more options um, for the director uh, and, and the department in their ability to do early release. Well, that's kind of... It's kind of backwards a little bit, right? That they're allowing the people who have been in the shortest time to get out earlier, and the people totally, who are twenty six totally out of twenty seven years. No, you can't get out because I guess the seriousness of the offense to some degree. But God, they've been in twenty five years. Right. I, I think that's the this. that's a hard thing. Me neither. Um, me neither. Because most of the people who we work with have really aged out of any kind of violent behavior. I mean, they may have been involved in some horrible things in their teens, in their early 20s. And then 20 years go by, 30 years go by, and they've got five years to go. And there's really there's really not a public safety reason anymore to be keeping them. It's really about punishment. I've heard judges say it in resentencing. You know, you're clearly not a risk, but this is about the offense and we're going to continue to punish you. It's a choice we're making as a society. I don't agree with that choice, but that's the choice that, uh, that we're playing out. It, it's... Nonsense from my point of view. Yeah, I mean, really, they should, I mean, in the next omnibus bill, they should have to show that there's a, um, that these people are a, a risk of reoffending has got to mm -hmm. be tied to their being incarcerated. Because um, I get into this um, on, you know, the, one of the things this bill does away with it to most basically is is uh bail gets rid of the money mm -hmm. bail cash bail system um and there's been just so much hot water around that um and flame throwing mm -hmm. around that same thing um i don't think it's people very understand similar what bail's for it is i don't think understand people like i think the critics of it don't understand what bail is actually for and right. they don't care they just it, and I, I view that to be a conservative liberal thing on this one issue, especially because like the, the conservatives who are all about freedom and, and, and freedom from government intervention in your life yeah. somehow have no problem with someone of color being locked up for yeah. two, three, four years waiting for trial just because some officer said they did something. Um, and yeah, they're too that's poor because they don't have the 10 grand. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's yeah. that's what I think of, uh, and it, it seems similar to this. I don't know why we'd be lacking. I mean, how much do we have to punish someone if twenty years wasn't enough? I don't understand. Yeah, I mean, I used to work for an organization called Human Rights Watch, and I had the opportunity to go um, both to the Hague and to um, observe courtrooms in the tribunal um, around the former Yugoslavia. And one of the things that struck me uh, was that the parties to the convention that led to The Hague um, and that international justice process won't send people into the U.S. justice system. They'll send them to just about anywhere else in Europe, but not to us because they consider our sentencing regime to be, um, you know, a, a breaking every human rights standard you can imagine. They, they wouldn't, even in some of the most heinous cases, anything more than 15 or 20 years is, is considered um, completely excessive and we do it every day. Yeah. 
Yeah, we're pros at it. God, throw more money at cops, build new prisons. We are so good at that. We are pros Mm -hmm. at shooting ourselves in the foot time after time again. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I saw that there were changes to the mandatory supervised release. Now, um, and as much as I'm up on criminal justice stuff, when I hear mandatory supervised release, I think parole. That's correct. So think of parole as being two things. Parole as we understand it in our popular imagination is two things. Parole is getting out early. You got paroled out. You get out before your sentence was done. That's one aspect of a parole regime. The other aspect is, are we supervising a person? Are we keeping an eye on them after their sentence for some period of time? When we got rid of parole in 1978, and as the law developed over the years, the the aspect of the law that is supervising after release is what we call MSR. And it's the half of parole that is that, I gotta go see my parole officer, I gotta check in with my PO. That's what that is. Um, It's very, very confusing because people in the media still refer to it as parole. And so that makes Illinoisans believe we have a system that lets people out early. We don't. Uh, So that's that's why it's fuzzy. All right, let me just for clear, I'm sure people out there are thinking this, I know it is in my head. So is MSR, supervised released after they serve their 85% of their sentence. It's on top of that. Well, that correct. Parole, it's on top of that. Cutting. It's on top of a hundred percent of their sentence in Illinois. 100%. All right. So that's why it's different than parole because parole would be correct. You serve 40% or 50% of your sentence uh, in, inside, right? In prison. And then you serve the other, you're paroled out, but you serve the rest of your sentence of, yeah. you serve the other 50% of your sentence in the community on parole where MSR is, you serve up maybe up to hundred percent of your sentence. And then MSR is yeah. an add on. Yeah. Oh. And the judge uh, that the statute judges what you get. So if you, if you dive into the statute, you'll see that there's a, you know, there's a set of rules. If it's X class X felony, you it's X number of years. If it's a class M felony, it's X number of years. You know, so that there's the statute spells out, the old regime and the new regime, um, and does create um, opportunities for the first time in a very, very long time for people to leave prison without being supervised, without MSR. Um, And that's where the debate is. So there are um, folks in law enforcement who I think believe there are certain offenses that someone ought to be monitored after they get out of prison, even if they've served 100% of their time. Um, Having a legislature set those terms without some kind of discretion is it's just weird right i mean again should we be judging whether someone's in a, a risk not just based on their offense but based on who they are when they get out uh, or when they're um you know preparing to be released it's it's tricky and if we yeah i've i find i don't think there's a lot of science to back any of that up i mean so am i right that they can they can violate their MSR. When they violate their MSR conditions, they go back into prison? They do. So um, in many cases, they do. So the, I, I just want to acknowledge the group that did most of the work or did all of the work, as far as I'm aware, on this statute is the John Howard Association. Um, and so I want to just let people know if you have questions about MSR and you want to talk about or learn about more of this this, this stuff, uh, the John Howard Association is where to go. Um, so, yeah, so one of the things that drives high recidivism rates um, is what's called technical violations and technical violations mm-hmm. of what? 
of your mandatory supervised release conditions. So um, I actually had someone parole in my home over the summer. So uh, uh, one of the former juvenile lifers who we started this this organization to really to help out uh, was released after 29 years in August. And he lived in my home for, for three months. And he did his, they call it the house arrest stage of MSR here. So it's a stage where he had an um, electronic monitoring. He had to check in with a parole officer once a week. And he was required to be in this home for 12 hours every 24 hours. So his curfew was eight to eight. So he had to be home from 8 p.m. till eight in the morning, and then he could go out and do business during the day, those 12 hours. He was almost violated um, a couple of times because he um, was, the car broke down. He's a few minutes late getting home. Um, this statute, prevents those types of interest incidents from becoming catastrophes. Um, luckily, there's some discretion already in the process. So we were, you know, we were able, he had a parole officer who was willing to listen and we were able to, to deal with, you know, one little indiscretion, but there are plenty of situations um, where um, people are violated and end up going back to prison. And um, it's, it's, uh, you can't imagine how how terrifying it was for for the man in my home, my friend Nelson, who got this terrifying call, you know, saying you're, you've you've violated the conditions of your parole. He'd been in prison for 29 years. That is not a place he wanted to go back. The guy doesn't even jaywalk, <laughs> you know. So the idea that you know that the ankle bracelet went off because the car broke down is is terrifying. Uh, yeah, it's pretty astonishing to me. I mean, I think the science has proved over and over the social science when they've looked at it is um, the more of these uh, requirements that you put on these in these programs, the more likely people are to fail. And you're kind of sending a lot of these people up to fail for no apparent yeah. criminal justice need. Um, this is right. not a rearrest. You got, oh, I'm sorry, but you got arrested on a burglary and you're out on parole or MSR. Um, That's a different there, thing. There could be an honest, right, there's an honest discussion to have about what to do at that point um, or something more serious than a burglary. Um, there's an honest discussion to be had. But placing them, um, you know, for being a few minutes late, I mean, there's a lot of those super requirements. I know this was, um, they've done this in, the social science, the Vera Institute has looked at this all over the country, and these programs are really, really um, bad, but they're very good politically. This is how you get yes, these things. Oh, right? yeah. I mean, that, that's the sound on the face of it. If you're average John Q citizen, on the face of it, it's like, yeah, well, if somebody did a murder and they did a bunch of time in prison, shouldn't we just keep an eye on them? You know, when they're reentering? Well, sure, but what does that look like? Are we talking about three years in Illinois, three years on top of your prison sentence where you have to register in some cases. In addition to registering, you have to also call a parole officer. If that parole officer, you know, we're all human. If that parole officer doesn't take a liking to you, um, or if you're in a particularly difficult um, living situation, it can be a powder keg. It really can. Um, and people go back to prison for those things. Uh, they don't get help. Um, we had a case that, that really, it still troubles me a lot. One of our, um, one of the people we've been sort of following and trying to support throughout the years came home after almost 30 years and his mother and his um, grandmother both died within two weeks of his coming home. I mean, it was just a terribly tragic oh situation. God. And he popped as many people would 
And that became a law enforcement situation, not a social service situation. And these are just, these are our failures, not theirs. And I, I think this, the statute moves us closer. It's not perfect, but it, it gets us a couple steps closer. We are very good at building systems that do nothing but fail, right? And we are very good at um, building larger police departments and bigger prisons and more sophisticated surveillance systems. Um, but we're not good at actually just solving the underlying problems. I know right. I'm very right. um, disappointed, I would say, um, with the Lightfoot administration's um, across the board on criminal justice matters. Um, mm-hmm. Her outright denial of the defund the police conversation was a massive mistake. And she had the chance to um, create, uh, take the first steps in a very big way in the state and then use the Chicago Police Department as the leader on that conversation, Chicago, and then push the rest of the state. And, and instead, the liberal bastion of Chicago and an otherwise mostly conservative state, she did the exact opposite. And I, I think that mm-hmm. gives cover to a lot of politicians and mayors and um, legislators across yeah. the state to go, oh, no, well, Chicago doesn't want this. Why would we do it? Um, yeah. So those things. Yeah. Um, and she's and she branded herself as a progressive. And that's um, it's really I think it's just really clear she's not on this issue. And. I, yeah, it's beyond. Candidate Lightfoot and president of the police board Lightfoot would be really, really upset with Mayor Lightfoot. Yes. Her tunes yeah. have changed, right? Yeah. We still have. And, and, you know, it, right? Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, you know, and, and I'm, I'm all for people learning and changing in the job, right? Like I'm for, in general, when you get a big job that you've never done before, like say mayor or governor or president, of course, there are going to be some things you shift on. Of course, you're going to learn new realities. You're going to see the other side of the coin. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, and you hit, hit on this, the denial to even engage in a public conversation in a meaningful way, the immediate combativeness um, when her stated positions as a candidate weren't, she would have been agree- disagreeing with herself and shutting herself down. That's what I, I I find really abhorrent. I don't I don't think I don't expect anyone to stay lockstep with their positions when they learn new facts. Um, but her inability to translate that experience to her supporters, um, some of and people who were the jury was out, that's really a failing, in my opinion. Yeah, and I, I'm convinced, and I'm sure you are to some degree. Although I'm going to ask you, so we're going to find out. Like, if we don't real, we're not going to solve the criminal justice problem until we solve the economic issues and challenges yeah. and the social issues that are facing these communities yeah. where crime and violence is most prevalent. Um, I'm all for defunding the police. I'm all for bringing in. We had cahoots on the show recently, the people running cahoots in Eugene, Oregon, about alternative response. I think that's wonderful thing, Chicago. We're working on bringing that to Chicago. Um, but if unless you realign the economics of these communities, mm-hmm. I just, I think a lot of what we're doing is trying to bail out the Titanic with a bucket. Yeah. There's a lot of people <laughs> in a lot of buckets. And yes, this bill made yeah. things better, right? Um, I have, I criticized MacArthur. MacArthur did this 
race to excellence or something multi-million dollar multi-site yeah. thing working on the back end of the justice system. And like, I'm for that, but the best way to put you out of business, which would be awesome, is to stop <laughs> the flow of people into the system. And I mean, yes, I and yeah, the, oh. <laughs> but I think there's more to it. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not convinced that that it's a one-way street, that you fix the economics and, and the crime issue will be solved. I think we're always going to have some levels of crime regardless. I mean, in communities that have better economic circumstances, there's still some crime. There's still some things that happen. People do stuff. We're human. Um, I think there's the deeply, deeply embedded um, racism in the idea that the, as Brian Stephen would Stevenson would call it the presumption of dangerousness of black people in particular, Absolutely, the presumption yeah. of dangerousness. It, it goes beyond the economics. It does. It cuts through. Um, and that there are, I think, a number of examples over the past few years of the high profile, you know, killings of black people for jogging or for going to the grocery store, or mm -hmm. doing their normal business. It shows, it shows that if that's, it's that fear, it's that deep seated white fear um, that is it's corrupted um, our legal system to such an extent that even if we fixed the economics, I don't I think we need to it, there's a two way street. And I'll, tell, I'll just give you an example. So bail the bail reform started to chip at this, but people who have loved ones in prison for 20, 30, 40 years are poorer than people who don't. Kids who grow up having to visit dad in the joint <laughs> have more trauma than kids who don't. It's it, it's all part of that cycle. So I, I think the black what the Black Caucus did in having an economic justice pillar and that the economic justice pillar um, three of their four pillars passed. I think it was health that didn't, but economic justice passed, education passed, and criminal legal reform passed. And they're all just a start, right? That they all are going to need required decades, you know, of us moving in the right direction. But you got to do it all. You can't. I don't think there's one lever, and I don't think it's one direction. I I agree with you, but let me say that I think that if we could change the economics, maybe it's the mm -hmm. first step. I agree with you. Racism is not going to be stopped, no matter how much. Um, especially overnight or within any, maybe our lifetimes. But I just think changing the economics changes um, a significant amount of the circumstances about why some of these crimes are happening. And it yeah. also empowers those communities to actually really advocate for the things they need. Because right now they're facing so many hurdles. Um, right. One on top, oh, so many things uh, that have intersected and hit their communities for 40, 50 years. Um, right. Anyways, I, we can go down that path. For I don't. I don't disagree with oh. you. We could. Um, and I don't disagree with you. I mean, I think you're 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 right. And the, the other piece of the economic puzzle is, and this is something that's hit me in the face during COVID on a lot of levels, is watching how the administration has had to deal with um, trying to implement COVID mitigations in prisons. Is the degree to which the powerful, you know, Democrat union, uh, white democratic union member, that voter, that person has mm -hmm. 
has an economic interest in the continuation of the policies that have been that we've been disparaging. Yes. And so that's a part of the economics that needs to be dealt with. I think we could funnel money into black communities all day long. We can fund demonstration projects. We could do, you know, all the best economic development stuff in the whole world. And if we don't figure out how to deal with low, you know, low to moderate income uh, people who are part of uh, public employee unions who depend on black bodies mm. in cages for their living. We're in big trouble. Yep. We are. I had a student come to me, maybe the second time I taught a class at UIC during my grad school time. And she goes, I, I was wondering if you could help us with something in my community. I'm like, okay, uh, I'll, I am sure I know someone somewhere that can point you in the right direction. She's like, yeah, they're talking about closing our prison. And it would just be economically, you know, cripple us. It would devastate and their I'm community. Like, I, yeah. Right. I'm really sorry. I appreciate the impact, but I am not advocating for keeping a prison open. I just can't do it. I understand the position you're in because your family's dependent on it and your community and neighbors are dependent on it. Um, oh, I agree. I think that's a huge um, one of the intersecting things that is, is the rural white union member that's incumbent on the prison industrial complex just to survive and the police you know Even, it's the police it's the courts it's the it's the prisons it's it the, i mean it's big and you know that the thing that really bugs me is that we can't have anything other than a binary conversation about this as long as it's about uh, being pro-union or anti-union i'm pro-union but i would like to have a conversation about the kinds of jobs that those communities could have if we invested in something other than prison to help people. Um, I don't think we can have a conversation about closing prisons, which we're about to have in the state of Illinois because our prison population has gone down and the facilities are a nightmare and they're just an absolute lawsuit machine, these, these old facilities, these dying facilities. We're gonna close some prisons in Illinois in the next few years if, if we can keep the population down. And that conversation is going to be brutal. And if people on my side of the political fence can't have some compassion for people like your student, yep. I mean, just because we have compassion for incarcerated people doesn't mean we have to shut the door on having compassion for people who are afraid of losing their job. We just have to, we have to break through this. It cannot be an either or conversation. We have to be able to say, well, what could we do? Is there something else our state could invest in that might create a job over here when we're maybe taking one away over there? Um, I get it. Um, I don't think it's reason enough not to close them down. I think we still have to close them down no matter what, but if we can't have that conversation where it's just never going to get better. I have that same conversation. I have the same thoughts all the time around police accountability. Yeah. And yeah. Bridging the gap, like when talking about bringing in a, a program like Cahoots, this alternative response program, and taking 10, 15, 20, 40 percent of the calls away from someone with a gun showing up, and the police union goes insane. 
And it's like, wait a minute, we're decreasing your workload. We're trying to find a way. The most dangerous thing you could show up to is a domestic violence, domestic disturbance. Violence they'll probably still have to show up to. So we can send an alternative response that may have the possibility of finding a solution and ending what has been, what we know is most likely going to be a long trail of calls and then lead up to violence and then an escalation in the violence. Why isn't that something you welcome? Right. But that conversation just gets shut down. Even in Eugene, Oregon, where Cahoots is working, it has been on 30 years and the police are still complaining, still trying to to lie about the data, about how many calls Cahoots is actually taking Mm -hmm. away from them. That's 30 years on. And they're still it's a power issue. There's all this combined. It's a money issue. You know, it's a political for the union. It's political clout. They don't want to seem like they're. They're, they're giving up anything like they're so giving, to keep themselves yeah. in power, right? Um, okay, I have one last question for you before I let you get out of here. Um, we go on to segment two here. Who were the main opponents of the bill and what was their rhetoric? Because I'll tell you, a friend of mine I trust with my life got um, some messages on Facebook about the <laughs> dangers of this bill, right? Because it's going mm-hmm. through the suburban suburban Chicago uh, parents' Facebook chats and everything. Yeah. And it was just yeah. the most insane um, rhetoric. So I just wanted to know who you had to, who you were dealing with or trying well, to beat in this bill here. Yeah. On our stuff, you know, we're our, the, the people on the other side of the negotiating table are, are almost always either the Illinois state's attorneys association or a handful of, of state's attorneys who, typically DuPage and some of the other collar counties um, who just don't, um, for a variety of reasons, don't believe that this type of reform is going to do anything but make their communities less safe. Um, that, to me, I feel like the we've been in debate with state's attorneys about this felony murder for a while. Um, I think the major uh, drivers behind the public the, the Facebook posts and the like were the Illinois Sheriff's Association um, and some, um, you know, individual county uh, leaders in that sort of arena um, who've been putting out some really horrific stuff. Um, there's a very sort of a, a Trumpy feeling to some of it. It's, it's a very, um, it's explosive, it's inaccurate, and it is uh, really easy to consume. So, <laughs> um, you know, it, 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 of course, it's very popular because it, it's explosive and accurate and easy to consume. And the, the governor and the, the, the attorney general and the state's attorney and the Lake County state's attorney, the Cook County state's attorney, there are several law enforcement officials at the highest levels of the state who were supporting this bill. Elected law enforcement officials are attorney general, the largest county in the states and one of the other largest county in the state state's attorneys. Um, but the associations of smaller communities, um, eh, it came out, it, it, it smacked a lot of that, that sort of, um, that Trumpish fear mongering and it's, it's ugly. It's very ugly. Uh, there were a lot of really good law enforcement people involved and engaged though. There really were a lot of good law enforcement people were at the table. Um, it's just, those aren't the ones who created the meme that took fire and, you know, (laughs) suburban white people's homes. (laughs) One of the aspects of it that I thought was the funniest is like, can you believe it? They're going to not allow, and I don't even know this is in the bill, but I read it today. So I had to bring it up. 
they're not they're no longer allowed to shoot people with their taser in the back they're not able to tase them in the back that's not Can you believe that i don't think that's accurate and, um, well, first of all, it's already against the rules in most police departments yeah, exactly. to shoot in the back because they're not an imminent threat of violence. That's and because right. there's medical reasons you're not you're supposed to shoot them in the stomach. I think there's very specific places you're supposed to taste someone for medical reasons, and that's how the training is. Um, but that was just one of the things that they were um, yelping yeah. about. There was it was all it smelled a very Trumpian. If there was a all I needed was a cue in there, and it would have been perfect. You know, yeah. someone drinking blood yeah. or eating babies. It's true. I mean, and the, the funny thing is the scenarios that they put in that that meme that's been making its rounds on Facebook, the governor did a point by point rebuttal that was obviously it was so easy. You know, it was like he had an answer to it in 10 minutes because it was so blatantly not what was in the legislation that it was really easy to rebut. Um, the problem is those people don't read rebuttals like that. That's not the crowd who's getting their news yeah. from you know, the sources who are covering the governor's rebuttal, uh, which is another, you know, societal problem we could talk about all day. But the, you know, the truth is the deadly force stuff is like, I mean, it's, it's so common sense. If you actually read it, read the statute, like you said, it's, it's, yes, it's big. Yes, it's long. But if you read the statute, it's, I mean, yeah, just don't kill people unless you're really about to die. Like you can still use force. Just don't use the deadly force. Right. And it seems I pretty a, common sense to me. Yeah. On the taser, the last thing, I have a, a friend in the CPD that I've had since high school. And he said to me, he goes, I don't understand why we don't get more. This is before, I mean, during the federal investigation. He goes, I don't understand why we don't get yearly training. We don't have any training. He goes, I was just on some task force yeah. with the FBI. And they're talking how about they get use of force training where they put their hands on people yeah. every year. He goes, no one in my, none of my guys on the job want to put their hands on everyone. They take out a club or they take out the taser and sure. if someone's even not passively uh, resisting. They just tase them. No one wants to put their hands on anyone. Yeah. We don't get any training. And he's been out of the force, maybe 15 years out of the Academy. He's like, I haven't had use of force training in 15 years. Well, and, and the so, jokes on them, they said, this is defund the police. This, this bill builds in, training, increased training opportunities, required training opportunities, but also the budget funds it. That the governor took into mind as they were building the budget, it's in the budget. So it, it provides more resources for, for, for training. Okay. You know, it's, it's yeah, not a defund. It's really crazy. I got a, yeah. um, all right, last thing I swear, but we got a okay, uh, I and get, then we got to uh, go. Slow LinkedIn messages about how uh, from a, an ex Cook County Sheriff guy about you know the de-escalation training it doesn't work it's a complete failure. Really? Hmm. How, how do you know that? But you, you don't you don't need facts. This is a factless yeah. discussion. When you get into these things, these aren't facts. Yeah, because that's yeah. Fake but the idea of de-escalation makes sense, right? Yeah. You would think. Yes. Who doesn't want to de-escalate? It would. Yeah, I mean, the, the the funny thing is, our entire lives we thought police probably got de-escalation training. Like, wasn't that part of what you'd get through the academy? Is right. learn how to talk people down from violence? No, just shoot them and throw them in jail if they live. Okay, Joby Cates, thank you so much for coming in. I really appreciate it. <laughs> Thanks, Tracy. Um, it's been a pleasure. Great Hopefully to see we you. Can talk about another one these soon. Great to see you too. Love Take it. it easy. Take care. Bye bye now. All right. Thanks again, Joby. We really appreciate you coming thanks. on. Okay. That was fun. So. All right. I got to go eat something. I'm about to pass out. <laughs> <laughs> Take it easy. Great to see you, Trace. Take care. Bye. You too.
Um, okay, ladies and gentlemen, for our last segment today, we're going to talk really quickly um, um, about the C- CPAC and GAPA ordinances. So for those who don't know, CPAC and GAPA are two different versions of like some kind of community council, community commission um, to have either some oversight role and some community meeting role or in CPAC's version, outright con- control of the police department. Excuse me. So, um, for those that don't know, last Friday was supposed to be what was thought to be quite possibly the last hearing in front of the Public Safety Committee, where they were going to once again, excuse me, vote on passing either CPAC or GAPA. GAPA, I don't remember what CPAC stands for. Uh, GAPA, Citizen CPAC, uh, um, Citizen Accountability Council, um, but GAPA is the uh, Grassroots Alliance for Police Accountability. We had Desmond Young um, on the show some time ago. You can go to our YouTube channel or Facebook page to get that video. Um, if you want to learn more about GAPA, we spent the hour talking about GAPA, the GAPA ordinance. Um, but there was supposed to be this vote, and it isn't exactly 100% clear yet why Mayor Lightfoot um, stopped that meeting from happening, but she placed a phone call of Alderman Talafario, who runs the Public Safety Committee, and and um, and stopped that meeting. We don't know exactly why that happened, um, but she definitely, well, she said to some extent that she's coming up with her own that is no one has seen, and she's going to get it directly put into the committee, and there's going to be a vote on it. No one has seen it as far as we know. We don't know if anyone has been able to comment on it. Um, we're trying to get some aldermen on the show next week or the following week to talk about what's going on. This is something that Mayor Lightfoot said she would pass in the first 100 days of her administration. This is candidate Lightfoot and police board Lightfoot and head of the police accountability task foot Lightfoot, not Mayor Lightfoot. We are now approaching two years, uh, one year of her administration being COVID, and they can't get this passed. They can't just figure it out. Um, it revolves a little bit around whether or not the commission that GAPA wants can um, fire the superintendent and to what degree they can do that or not do that. CPAC, they'd have absolutely control over the entire department. I said this on this show and on social media before. I am against CPAC. I don't think that's the right way to go. GAPA will be... um, I think GAPA is workable, um, but there have been so many versions that I can't tell you right now, ladies and gentlemen, what the current version that's up in the city council is. So um, hopefully we'll have some aldermen on the show in the coming week or two to talk about it and we can get a little more in-depth what's going on. As soon as Mayor Lightfoot uh, drops her version, uh, we will, of course, bring that to you and have a show on it. So thank you so much, everyone, for joining us today. Remember, next week we start Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 5.30 Central. Jonathan Bellew will be on our show on Monday to talk about his experiences covering the George Floyd protest and his response to the Office of Inspector General and the Deputy Public Safety Inspector General's report on um the protest, police accountability, and what the police did. Um, Once again, we'll see you. Hopefully, if you are interested, see you tonight at 7 p.m. You can see we posted the link to it. Um, You can come to our nation meeting. Um, We'd love to see you get involved. We have now around 125 people involved in projects, various research projects for um, 
for CJP, and they're from all over the country. So please join us tonight at 7. Uh, if not, we'll see you next Monday at 530 Central with Jonathan Bellew.